Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Eleanor Saita, a security architect at Etsy. We talk about how security isn't really about what happens to computers, but rather about what happens to the people using those systems. The relationship between design and security and shifting the industry's focus to think about security as a product of shared human outcomes. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, hi, Eleanor. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast because um, I the selfish, it's purely selfish reasons, um, <laughs> because I, we first met uh, through a different conference I'd been running called Velocity. And uh, I'd asked you to come speak there because I'd seen some talks that you had done about um, sort of complex distributed systems. And I really was blown away by sort of your approach to that, because I think it's really easy when we start talking about, say, complex distributed systems to start thinking of that in very technical terms, right? Yeah. Um, and and I feel like you have a very unique take on on systems in general, but 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 combinations of humans and and technical, uh, you know, systems. So maybe give me a, a brief uh, bit about how did you get into security as a profession um, and, and, and and what's the relationship of that to your interests in, you know, sort of risk and complex systems? Well, I guess I got into security the same way a lot of people do, which is I fell into it by complete accident uh, many, many years ago. Uh, it was seriously, it was the, the first, uh, first place I ended up with a job interview after school was uh, a security consultancy and I kind of fell in love and never looked back. That said, though, if you look back further, you know, I was already poking around at security stuff when I was in school. And also, I was definitely already poking around and thinking about complex systems when I was in school. Um, my dad was an architect, which definitely framed a lot of the way I think about the world. Pun intended there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, also, though, you know, I worked at NASA. I'd done some time at IBM Almaden Research in their human factors lab. I'd kind of bounced around a lot of different parts of the world of systems and saw it from a lot of different angles before I started looking at security. And I think that really made a huge difference. When I started looking at security systems, I, I immediately started, you know, my, my immediate inclination is, okay, let's look at how these systems are structured instead of just looking at the low level details. Let's look at what patterns we can pull out of this. And increasingly, especially over the past five or six years, it's been, let's look at how people intersect with this, right? Let's look at all of the places where there are humans involved in the system. And increasingly, especially after I started spending time uh, building systems for high-risk users, I realized that actually I don't really, no one really actually cares about what happens to the computers. I mean, they're pretty and all, and somebody paid a lot of money for them. But the only thing we actually care about, even with security, is what happens to all of the people using the system. So the, no the human one, outcomes. Exactly. Yeah, no one cares about what code is running on this machine or who authorized it or anything like that, except to the extent that it, it affects some human being. Now, because in many cases, we don't have kind of other options that don't involve interacting with some human being, we effectively really do care about what code runs on the machines. And if, of course, like, I, I don't want to pretend that, that the, um, the low level side doesn't matter. But starting from that high level side is very good as far as it its ability to teach us what we actually do care about in the low-level systems and to highlight different ways of defending against attacks or understanding attacks that we wouldn't necessarily see if we only looked at the code. 
So, I mean, can you can you give me an example of of that in a, like maybe a more concrete term, you know, thinking about a high level attack, not just in the case of the low level code? Well, for instance, the biggest example is uh, look at banking fraud and fraud detection systems, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, although financial malware is a real issue, right? And we, we are seeing more and more people who end up with malware running on their phones that then attacks like bank authenticators or logs into their account and makes transfers. And like this, these are starting to be very real issues, you know, let alone credit card numbers and all of this kind of stuff. The biggest way that those attacks are stopped isn't by preventing code from running on people's machines. It's by detecting fraudulent patterns and transfers at the human level and and kind of cutting things out at, at business rule levels and much, much higher levels. You know, in worst case, it's someone goes into a bank physically and talks to someone and has a conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's just as much a part of the security countermeasure set as any number of kind of anti-banking Trojan anti-malware projects are. So, I mean, the thing that I'm struck by, though, is is it sounds simple almost in a way there. It's obviously not. And I mean, these are some very complex systems that we're talking about mm-hmm. um, with wacky emergent properties, yeah. and, and partly because of machines and partly because of humans. And, and yep. so... You know, I, I would imagine somebody trying to, first of all, even think about that at a, at a systems level might find that pretty daunting. Um, and I mean, how do you think about or talk to other people about beginning to tackle, you know, understanding, say, even just the human side of such complex systems? So I guess for me, it always starts by looking at how we can structure this problem better, right? Anytime you're looking at a giant complex system, without any sort of structures to guide you through it, you're going to get lost and you're going to miss things. So, you know, there's a there's a, a kind of a toolkit that I've developed for myself over the past, gosh, I guess 13, 14 years now, um, of how do we decompose problems, right? So you get the split into things that happen at the design level, things that happen at the requirements level, things that happen at the architecture level, and then things that happen at the implementation level. And as soon as you can kind of slice, you know, that's one way of slicing apart your system as far as kind of degree of concern with the human side, degree of concern with the implementation side, you know, and then inside each of those layers, you can model things differently in other kinds of ways. But really what you're what you're talking about anytime you're you're doing this is you're building up sets of lossy abstractions that let you highlight different parts of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. You find one model that lets you see a system in a certain kind of way. And, you know, that lets you find certain kinds of problems, make certain kinds of assumptions, understand certain kinds of failures, and then you find a different, um, you know, a different model that lets you think about the problem in another way. And over time and with experience, you learn that like, okay, so I need, you know, I need at least four of these kinds of different models, say, and I need to look at this problem from these kinds of angles and this problem from these kinds of angles. And it's a lot of this is about experience, right? Anytime you're dealing with complexity and emergence, you really have to have some kind of intuition. But the other thing that our models let us do is they let us communicate with people who may not have that intuition. They let us share intuition. They make sure that everyone who's involved in the team, because of course, none of these systems are so small that like a single person is going to do anything meaningful with them, you know? They, they let you kind of work through all of these different patterns in different ways so that you can collectively both understand the whole system and know that you've understood it. Because this is, you know, in theory, 
and I have some issues with the concept of assurance. But in theory, <laughs> what we're trying to do is provide people with assurance that like, mm -hmm. hey, we've looked at all the bits of the system and we know it's going to be secure. Now, we don't, of course, that's a lie, right. but that's sort of the goal. And so we need to be able to do things like say, yes, we have finished evaluating the system. We've looked at all the things that need to be looked at. There may still be bugs. We don't know. Like, you know, we know it's not perfect. We, we acknowledge that it's not perfect. We accept a certain degree of risk, but we have also kind of finished a level of review at a kind of an even level across the whole system. It's, I mean, you've done this. You, I think a lot of the work you did on this as well for, for quite a many years was with sort of high-risk populations and, and NGOs, right? Mm -hmm. So can you, I mean, obviously there's probably things you can't reveal in that sense, but like, can you provide maybe a little more context on like systems you've looked at that impact like high-risk people? I mean, it's been a lot of different things. It's been everything from, hey, let's sit down with this news organization and, you know, go through everything that they do from, you know... Uh, how they throw away waste paper to how they pay their freelancers, literally. Mm. Well, you know, if you're paying freelancers in a very complicated country, you know, you need to think about how do you actually actually move that money in such a way that you're not revealing the identities of contributors because that might have very serious consequences for them. So, you know, sometimes it's it's that kind of like review of an operating organization kind of soup to nuts. Sometimes it's um, so I've done some work on the MailPile project, which is a secure messaging client. I've done uh, quite a bit of work on the Briar project, which is another, not a secure email client, but a, a more messaging and also kind of a, a, a tool to build other tools out of, um, you know, and that's been very much looking at, well, okay, we have the specific use cases, we have these kinds of populations, we have these kinds of adversaries that we know can um, possibly attempt to, to create these kinds, use these kinds of attacks and these kind of vectors, you know, what can we do to give people, give users better toolkits for their interactions with these adversaries? And that whole process of, of coming into understanding the high-risk world a little bit more was really, in some ways, it was really um, kind of challenging for me because I, I you know, I'd, I'd been spending, I'd, I'd spent probably eight years, nine years at that point when I first started getting involved in that community doing big enterprise security. And to come into this community and to realize that actually I know very little about how to create better security outcomes for human beings was really, was, a, was an interesting thing to learn kind of midway through your career. And what it made me do is go back and think a lot about the relationship between security and design. Yeah, And realizing that one of the things that we need to do when we're building systems for, at the time, I was mostly thinking about high-risk people, but I realized that this applies to any system. We need to understand what, A, not just what that user is worried about, but what the countermeasures that they can use to cancel out their adversary's attacks are, right? And because we're, we're dealing with that design space much more than we are with the code space. Mm -hmm. Now... If we can find things at the code level that get a, that give us new capabilities in that design space, that's amazing, right? So being able to get rid of classes of low-level bugs so we can stop thinking about them, great. You know that that's a that's a huge capability for the design space and the architecture space. Um, you know all of the different things that we can do with cryptography as far as using it to uh, reduce the kinds of attacks that people can be 
subject to and giving them new invariants that the system can can let them use. Great, amazing capabilities. But the reason why they're interesting is because of what they how they shift that design space. And that has to be the thing that starts driving everything. Now, of course, like obviously new technology contributes to, you know, it's not, it's never driven from just one end, but the design space is is the key for for understanding this world. And I want to I want to get clarification too because um, you know design and I think we're talking about design with a big D here, but I want to get yep. you know get that clarified is is a tricky word like security. Uh, yes. It means different things to different people. <laughs> um, yeah. So when and, I when so I'm in talking this context, about design, what do you mean? I'm not talking about design from the perspective of like, oh, well, we've got this architect. So one of the things that we hear, we have security architecture and security design, where architecture is the big scale stuff and design is the little fiddly details. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the things that your UX team might be doing, you know, looking at business rules and systems, looking at service design Again, not from the technical sense, but from the, this is a piece of bureaucracy or an organization that's going to be interacting with human beings. What are the services that this bureaucracy or organization provides to these human beings? And what are the touch points for those interactions? So it's, it's design way up at that high level. Right. Um, not not design of the technical systems themselves, yeah. you know. And again, there's a conversation between architecture and requirements and design. There has to be, you know. None of these can can act independently. But the thing that we don't see, the thing that I I really don't see in the security community yet, is an understanding of security design as really a separate discipline. So tell me more about that. I mean, what do you think that discipline looks like? Well. This, I'm this still new trying discipline. to figure you this make out. Make it up. It's yours. You get to yeah, make yeah. it up right now. <laughs> what uh, this does is, it look I mean, like? This is this is literally what I'm what I'm spending my time doing right now is trying to figure out. So in the design world, they have a bunch of tools that they use to kind of understand their set of complex emergent systems problems. Um, you know, personas, uh, kind of interaction flow uh, diagrams. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff like that that they use, but. The issue for me is basically figuring out what are the set of challenges that we have at the design level, which aren't already handled. And so one of the things that um, I've been working with my friend, Andy Nordgren, who uh, is the senior executive producer, I think, for EVE Online. Um, we've been yeah. friends for ages on what we're calling participation frames, which is basically a way to talk in a much more nuanced manner about the interaction modes that different users in a system have of like, oh, this is somebody who initiates new interactions. This is somebody who responds to them, not as this is like a, a, a role description or that kind of, you know, like our, or a persona, like the, the conventional big heavyweight things, but in the way that like, you know, you've got your friend and you're down at the bar and one of the two of you is the one who always sets up the punchlines and the other one is the one who, who kind of drives it home, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a dynamic and all of your friends know that that's the dynamic when you guys are together, right? So we need to understand dynamics like that. We need to have better tools for talking about them. Because it turns out that being able to talk about those details is really important for letting us to talk about how emergent social security issues around things like abuse or spam or scamming, you know, where do those come from, right? They come from those kinds of structural social dynamics. And being able to talk about that stuff with that level of accuracy opens up a whole new set of territory for us to understand what the security design goals of a system are in terms of like, what are the, you know, what are the countermeasures that we're worried about that we're trying to enable people to do? How can we um, 
you know, what is our what are our, our learning journeys look like for this system around security, right? How do we take a novice user on the internet who might be in a high risk position and teach them what spear phishing is in a way that isn't like we're going to sit you down and give you a lecture now, but instead right. we're going to like, you know, walk you through a set of protective strategies that you need to be aware of in a very lived experience kind of way. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that this is a level of thinking about human behavior that's, that may be very uncomfortable for some people. I mean, have you run into that? I mean, you know, not in a way that I can distinguish from the background level of the ways that security people think about human behavior being uncomfortable for many people. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that it, it is uncomfortable for a slightly different set of people, right? Uh, you know, the kind of endemic paranoia that comes with people who've worked in security for a long time, which I'm, you know, sometimes subject to, but hopefully yeah. in a professional sense, you know, is really uncomfortable for a lot of people because it means that like kind of every structural interaction, the security person by default is thinking about like, how can somebody screw somebody else over with this, with this interaction? And how right. can this go horribly wrong? Which is, you know, which is sort of weird. Um, but, but this it's also then, sort of taking like the security by obscurity idea and and kind of turning it sideways, right? Like you can't be so obscure about things anymore if you have to think about them this way. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, th I see this as being a kind of an unrelated set of things where this is okay. the 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 structure here is much more like it's it's uncomfortable often for the security people because it means thinking about what the what the fleshy things with the legs that yes. walk around in front of the computers are doing. Yeah, in that's a what different I meant. kind of way. Yeah. You know, and like, yeah, you have to think about your user's feelings, because if you don't think about your user's feelings and your user is really stressed out, then this complex set of ceremonies that you expect them to do to maintain their their the integrity of this computer, they're going to screw that up and then they get owned, you yeah. know, and or then all of your yeah. yeah, or they yeah. give up and then all of your technical countermeasures are useless. Um, I mean, one of the things and this gets into there's this whole just trite and tired you know, oh, security versus usability, which is mm. ridiculous, right? Because actually what we're talking about in all possible cases, the only thing that we are ever talking about is efficacy, right? You have a set of users, they have some adversaries who are trying to stop them from doing something, and they're trying to effectively accomplish a task. Anything which improves their effectiveness at accomplishing that task is good. Anything which harms their effectiveness at accomplishing whatever their actual goal in the world is, not the not the software task, but the goal in the world task. Anything that anything that, you know, that helps that is good. And once you look at this perspective, it it shifts around a lot of that kind of um combativeness between the fields. But it does mean that both the security people and the design people and the implementation people all have to kind of see the world from a slightly different perspective. Right. So what I mean, what have you found is the most useful to help uh let's take the security side of that world to to help people start to wrap their brains around this or start thinking this way or start working this way. Well, I'm still trying to figure out how I teach people this. It's mm. uh it is a complicated it's a complicated thing to deal with. I mean, you can war you can walk people up step by step with okay, let's talk about threat models. Threat modeling is a thing that you understand and lots of important people in the field have said that you need to learn this. So let's talk through this. One of the other things which I think is is useful is, you know, if you have actual users talking to actual users about the actual things they're worried about and then 
kind of having the security people and the design people and the users all together work to kind of brainstorm tactics or brainstorm specific problems. In general, one of the issues that I run into very frequently, both in the high-risk space and, and otherwise, is that security people understand this whole set of tactics that they use to stay safe, but right. they don't understand that they're tactics that relate to their lives and the kind of position from which they're interacting. They just think that they're sort of like pre-existing things in the world. Um, so there's there's some of that. There's a real challenge there around how you get security people to see the things that they're already doing as structures and tactics and designed responses that can then be designed again. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the one of the big answers probably lies in playing games. Um, it is a lot easier for people to see created structural social situations when it's much more obvious that they're created. And like when we've just sat down and agreed on the created social structure and everybody knows that we can go back to the couch and rewrite it and then it'll be different. And that lets people start thinking in this way. And that's actually about how you engineer those structures, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually where, I mean, a lot of my thinking has come out of, you know, uh, some of the the kind of live gaming worlds where people do spend a lot of time engineering social structures in real time and rebuilding them and thinking about this stuff explicitly. And that world for me has made it a lot easier to see this stuff. So. No, that's interesting. I thought about that in that in that regard. So you're not you're not really going after some sort of gamification thing um, per se, but more like sort of getting people to simulate sort human structures as much as you could simulate um, technical structures. Yeah, this is this is much more on the like games are a way of uh, playing with and exploring social structures. And one of the things that playing with and exploring social structures teaches you is that you can just build up a social structure and then tear it down. You know, and then you can look at well, okay, we have this technical system and we have the social system and we've created both of them right now. And maybe we're, we're running the, the, the technical side as paper prototypes or any of these kind of lightweight ways of, of pretending that you have a, a technical system there. But we've got these two elements interacting and we can see how shaping different parts of, the, of each system changes the outcomes. And that combination, you know, once you, once you get people to start seeing that like, what we care about is this outcome over here, and we can move towards that outcome from either one of these sets, either from over here in the uh, in the uh, the social system or over here in the technical system. We've got we've got both levers, and actually, it's much more useful when we move those levers together. Interesting. I, yeah, that's really cool. I'm gonna have to think about that some more. I the I was thinking about the other direction of this too, though. You know, you sort of mentioned um, security people trying to wrap their brains around the design side, and I'm you know I don't want to overgeneralize here, um, but I would imagine there's some friction in the other direction, right? From either design or architecture side to security. I mean, if you're lucky enough to have a security team at your organization, or maybe you have one security gal, um, often it gets the reputation of sort of being the department of no, right? Um, and I mean, are you seeing that in terms of trying to get design and, and other teams to work more collaboratively with security, like having to overcome some of that? Or is that ameliorated by this this different kind of approach? Um, I think that you can still fail in all of the same ways. Well, <laughs> you know, true that so many said, things. I mean, like, so basically, like, this is why I went to Etsy, right? Because mm. when I sat down and talked with John, 
and and then talked with Rich, the the security director. You know, they told me a story of a very different kind of engineering organization, and specifically a really different kind of security organization, where the goal is not to be at all adversarial. And in fact, you know, a lot of stuff is a lot of effort has gone into getting away from that adversarial relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that as soon as everybody understands that, hey, we're all working for this collective good outcome, it's actually much easier to stay in that mindset of, yeah, let's, let's get there. Let's make sure that we don't get too off course. But as long as you've got security as, as these, you know, the big, the gatekeepers in the combat boots who are going to stomp all over everything, yeah, it's not going to work. You know, you have to have a collaborative approach. I've got Al Green stuck in my head now for the rest of the day. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's stay together. Um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, yeah, I think uh, not everybody's lucky enough to go to Etsy, probably. Yeah. Um, but I think that the notion of focusing on, you know, sort of shared human outcomes is a really unique way of approaching that that shared problem between a number of groups in an organization that that all care about the same thing from very different vantage mm -hmm. points. So the last thing I want to ask you is about to wrap up on time here. Um, my my, my co-chair for this new event, uh, security event from O'Reilly, um, on which of which you are one of the program committee members. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, Allison Miller and I have discovered that we, when we started inviting people to be on the program committee, uh, that we were assembling a super group. Um, not, I don't mean like you know uh, Slash from uh, you know uh, Guns and Roses <laughs> and like not not not, uh, not that kind of super group, um, but that. You know, we'd been in trying to pull together a group of people who each had sort of very unique perspectives and experiences and skills. And we started jokingly referring to these as superpowers. Um, and the closing shtick for this podcast is to ask every guest what their security superpower is. So I'm curious well, what yours is. I think that my security superpower is seeing the systems and things. In many ways, this is something the, the best thing I got out of being a consultant is getting dropped into a new situation every two to six weeks for years on end. And you get really good at just sort of looking at a big pile of completely disorganized facts and people and cultural relationships and seeing all of the systems in it. Um, and, and that has turned out to be a superpower that transfers to a lot of other places. Okay, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Eleanor. Thank you for having me. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Eleanor is at Dymaxion, which is D-Y-M-A-X-I-O-N. If you liked the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs> <laughs>